0: Good morning and Merry Christmas. How was your summer? (laughs) All four days of it. Uh, Man, what uh, an interesting uh, season we're having. Uh, my name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you with us. I want to say hello to those of you joining us in on our online campus. Uh, if you're in a parent viewing room, that's a great option. If you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service, and hello to those of you joining us in our cafe. Uh, yeah, it's what an interesting season uh, we've had because it, it, it's like messing with you. It feels like, well, we got Easter last week and Christmas this week, and uh, there you go, just roll it all into one. Uh, but we're starting a brand new series today called Asking for a Friend. Asking for a friend. This will be the next six weeks. And the idea with this phrase is... Um, you've probably heard this phrase before. This is a phrase that you use, and more, more often in modern times, it's kind of become a hashtag that people will use uh, on their social media platforms to describe something where I want to know some information, but I don't really want you to know that I want to know that information. So it's kind of the almost tongue-in-cheek, like, hey, <laughs> asking for a friend, right? And so uh, I came across some of these uh, on Twitter this week that I thought I'd just share with you. Uh, here's some of these from Twitter. Lempo uh, says, does car insurance insurance cover suicidal badgers? Asking for a friend. Doesn't want you to know that he actually hit a badger with his car. He just needs the information in general, right? Uh, Here's another one. Uh, How do the pure vegetarians know that chicken isn't by mistake delivered to them if they haven't eaten or tasted chicken ever? Asking for a friend. Just wanted to throw that out there. That person's just wondering. Uh, Here's a couple more. When you're tall, do you walk through more spider webs? Asking for a friend. Just want to know. Uh, this one is from Brie. Uh, she says, If you are what you eat, will eating dates bring you one? <laughs> asking for a friend. She doesn't want to know that. But also, guys, if you're single, that's uh, barefoot underscore Brie. She's looking for a date. Just want you to know that. And then, <laughs> uh, how about this one? This is on uh, this week. Uh, hey, Microsoft Teams, when are you including a sarcastic font? This could have prevented some arguments asking for a friend. <laughs> And I actually think that's a great idea. Like a sarcastic font would be fantastic uh, for some of those text messages and tweets that you send out. And sometimes in church world, there are things that people want to know, and there's questions that people want to ask, and they're genuinely curious to know certain things, but they're nervous to ask because there are certain questions that make it seem like, well, uh, maybe I'm doubting my faith, and I don't want to seem like I'm doubting my faith, but I kind of have some doubts and I got some questions. Where can I ask those? And so so oftentimes we'll get questions and then it's, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, you know, asking for a friend. And especially uh, for me, like what I do as a pastor and uh, I often get questions from people that are saying, hey, what about, how do I I deal with this? Or this seems to, it feels like the Bible contradicts itself here. Or how do you answer this question? Or, uh, you know, I really want to be authentic to my faith, but I'm dealing with something in real life and I don't know how to reconcile the two. And oftentimes it feels like, the church isn't a safe place to ask some of those questions, because it, it seems then like, well, what am I doubting my faith? Is that really what faith is? And all of these things kind of mesh together to, to, to cause us to pause a little bit when we're asking some, maybe some difficult questions. And so as we jump into this series for the next six weeks, here's what I want you to know. First, uh, you don't have to believe everything we believe in order to belong and in order to be loved. Because we happen to believe that you were created in God's image. And that regardless of whatever you believe, you should be loved and you can belong. And so we want you to know that uh, based on what we believe, that you're created in God's image, we're going to love you and accept you and surround you with community. And uh, it's just important for you to know that right up front. But here's the second thing. Uh, We also believe that God is not threatened by our questions and our doubts. We also believe that we can bring our questions and our struggles and our doubts and go, God, here's what I'm dealing with, and, I, and genuinely ask those things. And God's not threatened by those things. And so I want you to know that uh, Westbridge Church is a safe place to explore your questions, explore some of your doubts, uh, explore some of, you know, your uh, skepticism and your cynicism and whatever else uh, you bring along with you and go, okay, but what about this? And what about this? And we can dialogue about those things. And that's what this Hopefully this uh, series is intended to do for us over the next several weeks. And so uh, last week we celebrated Easter. We talked about the resurrection of Jesus. And yet there's this big question that uh, often, uh, you know, is something for me that I I wrestle with. I'll be honest, continually. Uh, It's something that I'm always wrestling with, but I always find myself coming back to. And it's this question of how can anybody believe in resurrection? Because here's the reality. uh, That's a big deal resurrection is a big deal. And you're like, well, it happened a couple thousand years ago. I wasn't there. Uh, How do we know it really happened? How do we substantiate that? What's the proof? What's the evidence? And and for some of you, maybe you'd even say this. uh, You came from a certain faith background that kind of handed you a version of faith that was, um, you know, just believe it. And the Bible says it, so believe it, and that settles it. And then as you grew up, you attended college or high school or you had a group of friends. And as questions started to come up, you were unable to reconcile those questions with the faith you were handed. And you were very easily sort of talked out of your faith because you were never talked into your faith. You didn't really ever dig into the why you believe what you believe, and so it's very easy to come along and say, well, this is why you shouldn't believe. And so for some of you, maybe your experience was uh, you really were just kind of handed something and never dug into it for yourself, and as you got older, it was very easy then to sort of leave that faith. And I want you to know that during this series, we're going to explore some of those things. And I don't know if you know this, but the foundation of our faith, and this isn't meant to be a controversial statement, but the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith isn't even the teachings of Jesus— now, that's probably different than almost every world religion in the world today, which is kind of built on the teachings of the founder or the prophet or the holy one or, uh, you know, their teachings and their writings. And, and the, but the foundation of our faith is not the teachings of Jesus. And the foundation of our faith is not some philosophy or uh, some idea or worldview or a set of principles. Those things are important, but they are not the foundation for faith in Jesus. And that's really important for us to know. The foundation of our faith has nothing to do with the country that we were born into. And that's important to know because sometimes you can look at Christianity and feel like it's a little bit of a uh, an American religion. And while it's true that there are certain uh, parts of the world where your geography does play a, a, a role in probably uh, the dominant faith. There's certain parts of the world that have heavy influence in certain world religions. Most people who are born in India uh, lean towards Hinduism because that's the dominant influence in that area. If you're born in China, you're probably Buddhist. If you're born in Iraq, you're probably Muslim. If you are born outside this planet, somewhere in the galactic confederacy, you might be a part of a cult. Uh, and, um, and, and if you were born in the USA then the, I, the thinking kind of is like, well, that's, you probably have some kind of Christian influence. But that's simply not the case. The, you might have some Christian influence, but being born into the United States doesn't just make you a Christian. And the foundation of our faith is not a, a bunch of hype where you sort of psych yourself up and try to believe a sacred set of writings just to make it true. That isn't what faith is all about. The foundation of our faith is a very specific event that happened in human history. And it's this. See, The foundation of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. You're like, didn't we just talk about this at Easter? I want to dive into this because this is so important for us to understand. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter each and every year. But if you take away the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, then what you have at Easter is really just a very shallow and hollow holiday where you get a bunch of nasty candy and have a pretty weird mascot. But the reason Christianity exploded in Jerusalem in the first century and the reason that it exploded in the, in the Roman Empire and the reason that it even made it out of the first century and survived the Roman Empire and the reason that we can even know about a Jewish carpenter who uh, basically died at the age of 33 years old is not because of his teachings. It's not because of the teachings of Jesus. It's not because of the miracles of Jesus. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus. That is the foundation of our faith. And here's the tension that a lot of us feel because we weren't there. And the whole concept of resurrection is pretty far-fetched to us. It seems a, a little bit mythical. It seems a little bit mystical. It seems a little bit like a fairy tale. And the temptation for us is to dismiss it, to not think about the resurrection. It's easy and natural for us to want to separate the life and teachings of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus. Because throughout history, uh, nobody in academia, nobody in who, who studies uh, scholarship of any kind studies history, whether they're a follower of Jesus, whether in, in atheistic circles, regardless of, nobody argues with the fact that Jesus was an actual historical figure that lived and existed during this time. And most people, even if they wouldn't say, I put my trust in Jesus, most people, if you look at what Jesus said and at what Jesus taught, like the things that Jesus stood for. They like his stories. Everybody loves the idea of the story of a prodigal son where uh, somebody who was far away comes back and is welcomed with open arms and the relationship is restored. Regardless of where you stand with Jesus, you go, that's, that's a story I can get behind. Most people can get behind the story of the Good Samaritan, this parable that Jesus tells where somebody who is a, of a different nationality sees somebody in need and goes out of their way to serve them and to help them and nurse them back to health. And we go, that's something I can get behind justice and mercy and grace and the things that Jesus stood for. But the resurrection, that seems so far-fetched that in our culture, we've tried to take everything that we love and appreciate about Jesus and his teachings and his life and separate it from the stuff that's really hard to understand. I'll embrace the forgiveness stuff. I like that. That stuff's really good. And the love your neighbor stuff is really good. I know, you know, we'll use some of that. And I want to elevate the teachings of Jesus and the ethics of Jesus and sort of the morality of Jesus. But I want to leave his body in the tomb because that's too difficult to understand. I don't want to think about that too much. The problem with that is that everything that we know and love about Jesus— all of the love and the mercy and the grace, His compassion for the poor, His grace towards sinners, all of these things, His example, everything that you've come to know and love about Jesus through what was written about Him by eyewitnesses was written by the same individuals who tell us in great detail that the resurrection actually happened. So all of the, all of the details that we get about Jesus and we love about Jesus were written by the same people who tell us, oh, and also we saw Him rise from the dead. It was central to their teaching. Now, here, here's where this matters, because I'll be honest with you, throughout my life, even still today, there's times in my life and there's moments and there's seasons where I start to question and I start to wonder. And my skepticism starts to come up. I'm a natural skeptic. And I start to wonder, is this, is this making a difference? The stuff that we do and the way that we live, and, you know, is this really making a difference? Or, like, is, is all of this really true? Because I've never heard God actually speak to me. I've never heard the voice of God, right? Audibly, just be like, Jeremiah. Like, that would be amazing, right? It's like, it's unbelievable. That would, that would help a lot. But I've never heard that. I've never had that experience. I've never had anything that says, beyond a shadow of a doubt, with 100% certainty, I can tell you that everything about the scriptures and everything about Jesus and everything about Him is 100%. There. I have zero doubts. I still have doubts and I still have questions and I still get skeptical. But the thing that I always come back to, as so many of the eyewitnesses tell us that Jesus rose from the dead, and I just, I, I keep coming back to that part, because if if they're making up the resurrection part, then the whole storyline starts to fall apart, and you can't use a lie to support the truth. And if, if they're lying about the resurrection, then you have to start wondering what else they were lying about when it comes to the life and teachings of Jesus. And there's a classic song, I'm sure many of you maybe have heard it before, I was taught it as a kid, and taught it to our kids when they were younger and have heard it. And it's this cute little song. It says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a cute song, but there's a little misnomer there. We don't actually follow Jesus because the Bible tells us so. It's actually a lot better than that. It's actually a lot richer than that and deeper than that. We don't follow Jesus because the Bible tells us to. We have a Bible because people started following Jesus and then they wrote about their experience. That's why we even have the scriptures today. Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate is a record that you do exist. It's not the reason for your existence. And the Bible exists because it tells the story of Christianity. It tells the story of Jesus. It tells the story of the early church. In fact, uh, check out this timeline This gives us a good idea of why this matters and how the resurrection takes place. You have the birth of Jesus. You should know that uh, B.C. before Christ uh, is is what separates, uh, you know, ancient history and modern history. And uh, really, in, in actuality, Jesus is probably born like in the year 3 B.C. Because you're like, how can Christ be born before Christ? That doesn't make any sense. But... Basically, they're using like a Julian calendar, and then at some point they switch to a Gregorian calendar, and then they trace the dates back, and they're like, oh yeah, Jesus is actually born like in the year 3 BC. Whatever. Okay. (laughs) And then, here's what happens. So Jesus is born, and then in the year 30 is when Jesus is put to death. And you, all of the eyewitnesses write about this experience of Jesus, that at 33 years old, he's roughly 33 years old, as best as we can tell from all of uh, history, not only from scriptures, but extra biblical history and uh, scholarship. And we recognize no one disputes the fact that this is about as accurate as we can be on the time when Jesus died. And then uh, a couple of months later, the church is born. Luke records for us. In the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's it's this story of uh, Luke traveling with the Apostle Paul, and he's describing all the events that take place as they unfold over years. But it started about a couple of months after Jesus was put to death, and the church is born, and people are turning to Jesus, and they're following the way of Jesus, and, and, and specifically because so many of his followers claimed to have seen him. So many of his followers claimed to have interacted with him after he rose from the dead. And it's absolutely incredible. And within literally just a few months, there are tens of thousands of followers of Jesus because of the eyewitness accounts, not because, hey, here's a Bible and you should follow Jesus because the Bible says so. The Bible didn't exist. Most of what we call the New Testament did not exist yet. People hadn't written about their experiences yet. They followed Jesus, not because the Bible says so, they followed Jesus because they saw him put to death and then they saw him alive again. And they said, that's, I'm gonna put my trust in him. Now, here's what's fascinating as you follow this timeline. uh, You have the year 70, uh, you have the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Well, why bring that up? Vespasian was a guy who was a Roman general. He's a uh, slain siege to the city of Jerusalem. And it, as he's laying siege, he actually becomes the emperor. So he leaves, he goes to, back to Rome. He leaves his son Titus in charge of this siege in Jerusalem. And Titus begins to carry it out. He digs a trench all around the city of Jerusalem and he starts to crucify people. And it's a way to intimidate them. And eventually they, they bust through the walls of Jerusalem. On August 6th, they break through the walls. They burn the temple to the ground. No Jews are allowed in the city of Jerusalem. And the reason that this is important is because none of this, none of this is written about or recorded by any of the eyewitnesses. And we know from all, uh, from all of history that this happened in the year 70 AD. 70 AD, and, and this is described, it's not described or referenced in any of the documents that eventually become our New Testament. There's no reference to any of that in any of the writings. And the only reasonable explanation for that is that it hadn't happened yet. Because when you read the eyewitness accounts, they don't read as myth or legend or even as a a work of fiction. When you read the eyewitness accounts, they really read as if it's a historian writing. They're writing them uh, during the time when all of the eyewitnesses are still alive. Now think about that, the further away that you get from an original event, the more it starts to become a legend, the more it starts to become a myth or almost a generational game of telephone, right? It's like, well, they passed it down and the next generation, they, the story changed a little bit and, and then it, it got passed down and now here we are, you know, we're a thousand years later and you've got Babe the Blue Ox and his hoof prints are making lakes all across Minnesota. And it's like, yeah, all right, how much of that is true, right? We, we recognize that's, that's pretty mythical and mystical and legendary. But what we have is no eyewitness account makes any record or any mention of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which means every one of these eyewitness accounts has written between the years 49 and 69. And when you read what they wrote, they wrote history. They weren't making up fiction. In fact, when you read Luke, Luke, who is a Greek physician and writes to Greek audience trying to describe for them the events that they're hearing about that are circulating in the Roman Empire, he actually describes it this way. He says, It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. That's a very specific date and a very specific name. The Roman emperor Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Eturia and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. If you were making up a work of fiction, if you were trying to get somebody to believe a story, the last thing you would do would include this kind of detail, this kind of historical detail. You would never do that. And they started making copies, and they were distributed widely, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies all over the world of the writings of these eyewitnesses. Do you know what you make copies of? Things that are important to you, things that you want to be distributed and you want people to know and you want people to hear. And so they did not make copies because they believed that what they were writing was the Bible. And they didn't make copies of these writings because they, they believed that what they were writing was sacred scripture or divinely inspired. They made copies because they believed that what they were writing was true. It was their experience of what they had seen and what they had heard. And then, as you follow this timeline, you go almost three hundred years into the future, and you have Constantine who becomes the Roman emperor. And Constantine, at the time that he becomes the, the emperor, he becomes the undisputed emperor of the Roman Empire. He wins over some other generals and eventually unifies the whole empire. And he's looking for something that will unify the empire. He's looking for something that will bring all of the empire together. And so he he makes in three twelve he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Which is fascinating, because all during this time, up until 312, they were persecuting Christians. The the Roman Empire, as well as the Jewish leaders, were actually arresting followers of Jesus. And the Roman Empire was actually torturing and, and executing followers of Jesus in the most gruesome ways possible, really killing them for sport in front of all kinds of fans. And yet these followers of Jesus continued to allow themselves to be put to death rather than say, no, the way of Jesus is not true. The story of Jesus is untrue. Why would you do that? It's because they really believed that Jesus died and rose again. And there was no Bible. The Bible didn't exist yet. And so you have uh, Constantine who says, I'm going to make this the official religion of the Roman Empire. And it wasn't because he genuinely believed in Jesus and wanted to follow Jesus' ways. It was because he wanted something that would unify the empire, that would bring everybody together. And the one thing that at this point in in human history that all of the world had in common was Jesus. It had spread so much. The way of Jesus had spread so much that the one thing that he could think of that would bring all the empire together was Christianity. And so he makes it the official Uh, Religion of the Roman Empire. And eventually he embraced it. That means he, he was looking for something to unify all of them. And then you get to 350 AD. And you have these codecs, which are the writings that have been copied through hundreds of years. And, and some of the earliest uh, original handwritten copies, they bring them together and they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to bring all of this together. And by the time that you get to the year 388, what you discover is Ta Biblia. This is where we finally have all of the Hebrew scriptures that are brought together with these codecs. And they're all put together and, and a bunch of scholars get together and they determine this, this is what we believe to be divinely inspired. And this is the canon and what's going to guide, uh, you know, the church. moving forward. And here's what's fascinating about all of this. None of this was mentioned in uh, any of the writings. The destruction of the temple wasn't mentioned in any of the writings, which means all of the writers actually described it in their own lifetime. It wasn't myth and legend that was passed down hundreds of years later. It was in their own lifetime that these things were written. And the biggest growth of Christianity was right here. The biggest advance of Christianity was when there was no Bible. So this is important. We don't follow Jesus because the Bible says so. We follow Jesus because he rose from the dead and people saw him and then they wrote about their experience, which is why we have a Bible. In the first and second and third century, followers of Jesus, they believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. They didn't choose to follow Jesus because the Bible said you should follow Jesus. And that's a sacred writing and we should follow that. They chose to follow Jesus because they knew the people who had followed Jesus, and they believed that what they told them was true. And so imagine this. Imagine some of the contradictions that we face when, when we read the scriptures today, and we go, well, uh, how can I believe in a God when, when his, his writings are, you know, sometimes I feel like they contradict, or sometimes it feels like they contradict science, or I got questions about a worldwide flood or a mass exodus from Egypt, or, you know, I got questions about the fact that... If you trace the dates back in the Bible, it says it's 6,000 some years old. And yet, you know, carbon dating puts us at hundreds of millions or possibly billions of years old. And what do I do with the Big Bang? And you know, there's all of these questions. And they're good and legitimate questions. And none of those things are the foundation for our faith. If you were to go back in time, if you could somehow uh, get in touch with Bill and Ted and borrow a time machine... And you could say, I'm going to go back in time and talk to Peter and say, Peter, what do we do with all this stuff? What do we do with the idea that, you know, we're not sure if if this flood really happened or was it just a story that was used to help us understand God or, uh, you know, the carbon dating and the Big Bang and, uh, you know, how do we reconcile all that stuff? And a mass exodus out of Egypt. And uh, there's so many questions that we have about the scriptures. And Peter would just look at you and go, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no clue. I can't answer those questions for you. I didn't even know those were issues. He would say, here's what I know. On Friday, Jesus died. I denied that I even knew him. And on Sunday, I had lunch with him on the beach. That's all I know. And all I know is if a guy can predict his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, I'm going to follow him. And I don't know how to reconcile 6,000 years versus carbon dating versus the Big Bang versus, you know. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. But he was dead. I saw him die. And then I ate with him. I put my trust in him because of that. The foundation for you and me isn't the Bible tells me so. We have a Bible because People put their trust in a risen Savior, and then they wrote about their experiences. And for the first 300 years, Christianity centered on an event, not on a book, not on sacred writings. And the question for them wasn't, is the Bible true? The question that they wrestled with was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And they all said, yes, because we saw him. In fact, the Apostle Paul would come along and he would write this to a group of people. And he's writing to a group of people in Corinth within this time span. And here's what he writes to this group of people to assure them of resurrection. And then he provides some instruction for them about how to, why that matters and how we deal with that today. Here's what he says. He's writing to a group of people they are living in first century Corinth. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the Scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. This is Paul writing a guy who knew Peter, hung out with Peter, a guy that knew the 12 apostles. He hung out with them. He talked to them. He interacted with them. He says, I'm telling you, every single one of them say that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Paul is saying this, we still live in the era in which all of these eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Jesus are alive. Now, a few of them have died, but the majority of them are alive. So you don't want to take my word for it. You know them. Go talk to them. Listen to their stories. Every single one of them will corroborate the exact same thing, that they saw Jesus alive. Hundreds of them at one time saw Jesus alive. And while a few of them have passed, most of them are still alive. You can hear their story directly. Then he says this, Then he was seen by James. Okay, this is huge. James is the brother of Jesus, right? And I I can't imagine growing up with an older brother who's Jesus. (laughs) It's just impossible, right? Think about that. In fact, we have stories of this throughout the scriptures, throughout the eyewitness accounts that say, at a certain point, all of Jesus' family thought that he was crazy. They thought that he had lost it. They didn't want anything to do with him. They had written him off. When you get to the story of Jesus' death and his crucifixion, none of his family is to be found. The only one who's there is his mother Mary. And everyone else is gone because they go, he's, he's lost it. He's crazy. The guy thinks he's the Messiah. You talk about a Messiah complex. This guy's got it. And then he showed up to James. He showed up to James. And James becomes a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus showed up to James, you know what he didn't do? He didn't hand him a Bible. Hey, Jim, read this. He didn't need any sacred writings to convince him because he was the living, breathing word of God standing in front of James. And James believed. James eventually becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem and is eventually put to death for claiming that he saw Jesus alive. So he appeared to James, and then uh, he appeared to all the apostles. Paul says this, Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I'm the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Paul would say, There is no explanation for the success of the church, for for the movement of the church, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. It didn't spread because the Bible said so. It spread because Jesus actually rose from the dead and his eyewitnesses wrote about it, which is why we even have a Bible. So they didn't document what they believed. They documented what they saw. It wasn't a belief system and they had to write it down and here's the doctrines and here's the 10 points or the 16 points or whatever you want to get with. They just said, we saw him dead and now he's alive. So we're going with what he says. And we're going to tell you about our experiences. And that's why Paul writes to this church in Corinth and says, now I want you to understand the implications of this. And so he dives in in the next several verses and says, if Christ had never been raised, then the message we tell is worth nothing and your faith is worth nothing. The whole thing hinges on Jesus actually rising from the dead like he said he would. And if he didn't, then all the stuff we're teaching, the way of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, all of his his morals, his ethics, and the way to live and love, it's all for nothing. It's built on nothing. It's kind of a waste. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all the ways that your faith has shaped your life is really useless. It's really hollow. You're building your life on a sinkhole that that will eventually collapse. You should just tear up the Bible and be done with it. He says, uh, he continues, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, Uh, been raised from death, then your faith is for nothing. You're still guilty of your sins. This is huge implications for us. At some point, if you're a follower of Jesus, you you transfer your dependence from yourself to Jesus, and you say, I I don't have the ability to forgive my sins. I don't have the ability to do enough to repay for the wrong that I've done, and so I'm putting my trust in you. And the reason that we believe Jesus has the power to forgive sins is because we believe that he overcame death. If he didn't overcome death, then he It's really difficult to believe that he has the power to extend forgiveness of our sins. And Paul says, if if he didn't raise from the dead, our sins aren't forgiven. There's huge implications. He continues. He says, if our hope in Christ is only for this life here on earth, then people should feel more sorry for us than for anyone else. People should pity us because we have this like eternal perspective. And it turns out it's for nothing. And we're living our life in a certain way through that eternal lens when we should have just been enjoying life here and now. We should be pitied. Paul says if the only benefit you get from following Jesus is this current life, then we're doing it wrong. People should feel sorry for those of us who financially give week after week after what God's entrusted to us, thinking that we're seeing the world through this eternal perspective and we're actually investing in eternity. And at the end of the day, you weren't really investing in eternity at all. People should pity you. For those of us who, who serve and give of our time and our energy and our effort to serve other people on a regular basis, what are you doing? You're wasting your time, Paul says. The only reason to do that is if you are, have an eternal perspective and you're making an investment in somebody's eternal future. But without that, you're, you're really just wasting your time. People should feel sorry for, this, for those of us who are working through a difficult season in marriage. Because there's this eternal perspective and we find hope and healing in Jesus. And instead, it's just like, man, when it gets rough, just move on. Find somebody else. That'd be way simpler than working through things. Now, people should feel sorry for those of us who are working to forgive someone who doesn't deserve it. Like if somebody wrongs you, be done with them. It's much easier than to forgive. People should feel sorry for those of us who give up time and resources and energy and effort to continue to move God's kingdom forward. If at the end of the day, it's only in this life and there is no eternity. And Paul is kind of tongue-in-cheek, a little bit sarcastic here. He says this, if we're not raised from the dead, then let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. If at the end of the day, we, we have this eternal perspective and that's what causes us to live life this way because we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Paul says he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to over 500. He appeared to his brother James and he appeared to me. And that's why We live life the way that we do. It's why we give and love and serve and and do so many of the things that we do. But if that's not true, then what are we doing? We we should be indulging our sinful pleasures. We should be enjoying life, right? If there's no hope of being raised from the dead, if we have no hope of eternity, then we should just eat and drink and just enjoy and just indulge because tomorrow we die. It's the original Dave Matthews in 1 Corinthians. He's... It's a great verse. What he's saying is this. If Jesus is dead and he didn't defeat sin and death, then why am I not just enjoying all of the sinful pleasures that this world offers? It's only the reality that Jesus is alive and has something for me for eternity that makes me say, okay, I, there's actually something worth living for bigger than myself. If there's no living Jesus and no promise of eternity, then there's nobody to be accountable to for any of it, then I've got some sinning to do. And that's Paul's point. We should be, people should feel sorry for us that we're investing in this eternal thing that at the end of our lives we'll come to realize doesn't actually exist. And it's this sort of tongue-in-cheek way of him making this point. And Paul is saying if there was no resurrection then we're wasting our time. And if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead then it doesn't matter how practical or helpful Christianity is. It doesn't really matter how it makes you feel. It's useless without the resurrection because it means we're living a lie. And so the question that every single person really needs to answer for themselves is, do I believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? That's that's the question to wrestle to the ground. Do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I personally believe that the answer to that is yes. And not because the Bible tells me so, but because John saw him and wrote about his experience. And we can read about that. And because Peter saw him and wrote about his experience And James, the brother of Jesus, saw him and wrote about his experience And Matthew saw him and wrote about it And uh, Luke, uh, who was a a Greek physician and a a historian And and he set out and and interviewed all the eyewitnesses And put together a detailed account And, And they were all put to death because of what they claimed to have seen No one would die willingly for something that they knew to be false, for something that they knew to be a lie, let alone many, multiple people, all of them, willing to die for something that they all knew was a lie. They had seen Jesus put to death, they had seen him alive again. And if you arrive at that conclusion, as I've arrived at that conclusion, then here's what you know your faith is not a waste, your faith is not useless. And every time that you give and serve and volunteer and you forgive and you work at your marriage and you work at restoring relationship with other people who you have a difficult time with, and every time that you do these things and you share your life in community and you resist temptation, your faith is growing stronger on something of substance. That it isn't built on just a, a, an idea, it's not built on fiction, it's not built on uh, even just a, a sacred set of writings, but it's actually based in an, an accurate historical event that Jesus overcame death. And that's why Paul wraps up his thoughts on the resurrection in this letter to, in Corinth to this. Uh, he says this, so, so, in light of all these things that I've just said, so, in light of the fact that uh, Jesus showed up to Peter and the 12, in light of the fact that he showed up to over 500 people all at once, and, and most of them are still alive, and you can talk to them and hear their story, and in light of the fact that he showed up to James, his own brother, and in light of the fact that he showed up to me, and in light of the fact that so many of these people have seen him and claim this even at the point of death, so, my dear brothers and sisters, stand strong. Don't let anything change you always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You know that your work in the Lord is never wasted. Because of this, because of these eyewitness accounts, and because there's so much historical, accurate data around this, we can know that every time that we give, every time that we serve, every time that we love, every time that we forgive, every time that we follow the way of Jesus, it is not a waste. It is built on a firm foundation. Now, Let me just say this, I'm not saying that you have to arrive at the same conclusion that I have. You don't have to believe in order to belong. But for those of us who do believe, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for who we are, for how we live our lives, because what happened to Jesus physically in the resurrection is the same thing that he promises will happen to us spiritually when we become followers of Jesus when we begin to put our trust in him, not anything that we do, but as we gather that information and we go, you know what, this is something I can put my trust in. And we transfer our dependence from ourselves and what we can do to try to be in God's good graces. And instead we go, I could never do enough or be enough on my own, but because of Jesus, because when he died and rose again, he offers new life to me, that's what I'm putting my trust in. And when that happens, here's what you need to know. We are reborn into God's family. We are reborn. This is the language that Jesus himself used. He said, look, first you're born of water. That's just physical birth. But then you're born of the Spirit. You're, You're actually reborn. You're given a second birth. You're born again. That's the language that Jesus uses. In other words, it's not my behavior. It's not my morals. It's not my ethics. It's not in my talents. As far as God is concerned, I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to Jesus. And what's interesting is we still use, even though this is the language Jesus used to be born again, we still use this language to justify our own way of living our own life in our culture today. We oftentimes go back to, well, I was born that way. You can't, don't judge me. I hear this all the time. Don't judge me. You can't judge. I'm born this way. I I was just born with a propensity towards anger. I'm just born with a propensity towards this I'm Irish. Okay, I was just born that way. You can't judge my life or my lifestyle, and trust me, I don't want to judge anybody. But we use this now in our culture to say, "I'm I'm born this way," so don't don't tell me anything differently. And yet, the whole message of Jesus is, regardless of how you've been born, you've been born again. You've been given a brand new identity. You've been given a whole brand new way of living. That old you that was born that way, we've all been born that way. We're all born with sin. We're all born into this broken world and we experience brokenness and we choose brokenness. And I can tell you I'm born that way all day long, but the reality is when I start to put my trust in Jesus, I'm now born again. I'm, I'm given a brand new identity and that's the one I am to live out. And in Jesus, you've been born again. That's why Paul writes this. He says, uh, this means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Our values, our character, our attitudes, our way of thinking, our priorities, the things that we pursue, what we were dies And we're resurrected to new life with Jesus. And the challenge for us is to embrace that new identity, to see ourselves the way that God already sees us, and to move towards and live out that new identity. That's why resurrection matters. In fact, Paul would write it this way to a group of people in Ephesus. But God is so rich in mercy— And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. When Jesus overcame death, he overcame sin for you and me. Our sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And when when he rose from the dead, we experienced new life. He continues and says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Not when you behaved, not when you did the right things, not when you said the right things, but when you said, okay, I believe. Jesus, I believe that you actually rose from the dead. I'm putting my trust in that. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We've been given a brand new identity and a brand new way of living, and because Jesus overcame death, we are made brand new. And... We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. Now we get to step into this new identity and live it out and be a part of God's kingdom here and now. Every moment of every day, every breath is a new opportunity to live out and embrace the new identity that God has given us through Jesus. So that's why we do water baptism. This is important. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to do water baptism on May 7th, uh, 6 o'clock. We're doing a worship night. And if you've ever wondered, I've been to a couple services here, and sometimes, every once in a while, I go to a service, and they pull out a tub and dunk people. What are you doing? This is what that is. Water baptism is simply an external celebration of new life. It is the way that we model a death, burial, and resurrection. Now you're like, well, it sounds kind of creepy. Just like Jesus... We bury our old life in the watery grave. It's symbolic of us saying the old me that was born a certain way, that me is being put to death in a watery grave. I'm burying that old me. And then just as Jesus rose from the dead and overcame death and overcame sin, I'm rising to new life with him. And now that's, that's, that is what is going to mark me moving forward. That is my new identity moving forward. And water baptism is simply a way to say this is, this is what marks my new identity moving forward. And so if you've ever wondered, like, why do they do that? It's a way for us to celebrate with you the fact that Jesus has made you new. And if you've never taken that step, even if you took that step when you were a baby and your parents had you baptized, I would encourage you to take that step as an adult, as a teenager, as as somebody who knows I can make this decision for myself. And it doesn't negate the decision that your parents made for you. It simply confirms that decision. That now, because of Jesus, I've been made new. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? In baptism, we're joined in Jesus' death. For uh, we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And then just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. In baptism, we go, uh, the old me is dead and buried, and I'm rising to life with Jesus. So here's what you need to know. God loves you. And God loves you not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus has already done for you. The death and resurrection of Jesus forgives sins and makes all things new. And if you've been working really hard to get into God's good graces, or you've been saying, I can't say yes to the offer from Jesus because I don't feel like I measure up, neither of those things is the message. The good news is that Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. And the only corroborating evidence that I have for you is all of the eyewitness accounts. And I would encourage you to ask those questions, to read the eyewitness accounts, to explore what they say and what they wrote and what they saw. Because it means if Jesus did overcome death, it means that he has the power to forgive your sins. It means that there is a life after this life, there is eternity and you and I have been invited. And the good news is you don't have to do anything other than put your trust in him. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I wanna invite you to do that. Whether you're online or here in the room, you can just agree with this prayer in order to say yes to the invitation of Jesus. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I have walked away from you, and I'm so, so grateful that you never walk away from me. And so I wanna say yes to your invitation. Make me your son, make me your daughter, make me a part of your family. I believe that you died and rose. I believe that you overcame death and that there's more to this life than this life. And so help me to put my trust in you and to follow your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. I want to give control of the steering wheel of my life to you. And God, for every single one of us, especially when we're discouraged, when we're down, when we when we start to question and we start to wonder, is any of this making a difference? May we be reminded, nothing we do for you is a waste because you overcame death and eternity matters. And so the way we live today matters. And I pray that as we live out the way of Jesus, our lives would make an impact to the people around us. We commit this week to you and we pray this in your name. Amen.